Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. My friend and fellow Quaker, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio, introduces me to the most awesome of people across the religious spiritual spectrum, and among them were the co-hosts of a brand new podcast called Climate Changed, which we featured for Spirit in Action back in June. The co-hosts are Nicole Diroff and Ben Yashua Davis, and they are part of the BTS Center in Portland, Maine. Summer schedules being as complicated as they are, Ben was the lucky one available to join us to talk about the amazing and creative spiritual institution and programs that have grown out of the 2013 transfiguration of what once was the Bangor Theological Seminary. Ben, Nicole, and the other staff have opened the floodgates of spiritual imagination, as you'll learn as Ben Yeshua Davis, the BTS Center's Director of Applied Research, joins us via Zoom from just outside of Portland, Maine. Ben, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we go on, I wanted to check your name. I have my own peculiarly interesting name, Mark Judkins Helpsmeet. So typically, most people just know me as Mark Helpsmeet these days. But Ben Yeshua Davis, that has a Jewish feel to it, Yeshua. Tell me about your name. My name, I joke that for love, I moved down to the end of the alphabet. So my family's last name was Davis. My wife's family's last name was Yashua. And there are so few Yashuas in the United States that uh, if you put them all in one room, it would be a family reunion. So we decided to hyphenate both to kind of indicate the equality within our marriage. And it's also a way to you know, preserve an endangered last name. And indeed, it does come, they believe, from Italy, from a Jewish community in Italy that immigrated here in the 19th century, and the spelling actually used to be I-O-S-U-E, but uh, when they immigrated, they decided that Y-O-S-U-A would be easier, and so I have now the name Ben Yashua Davis. And helps me, since it's the name that my wife and I made up when we got married, we sat with the question, who are we together, rather than doing the patriarchal name thing. But I have Judkins as my middle name, the name I grew up with. So I'm trying to preserve a little bit of that, too. (laughs) And your partner in the Climate Changed podcast is Nicole Diroff. Tell me about her and how you two got together. You have a background in podcasting already? Yes. In fact, that was one of the first ways I became associated with the BTS Center is I hosted a podcast for five years called Reports in the Spiritual Frontier, which interviewed practitioners who are operating on the edges of organized religion, particularly Christendom across the country. The BTS Center was my sponsor for that podcast the last season I did it. And so that was kind of part of this set of skills that I got to bring to my work when I joined the BTS Center first as a consultant and then as a staff member. That's where Nicole and I got to meet each other. I still remember the the days, it feels like the days back when, but this was really um, 2020, the same year of the pandemic where I joined as a consultant and Nicole joined as a consultant. And then we had um, Kay, our operations manager and Alan, our executive director, this little small team. And we were the first people who kind of tended this vision for what would it look like for us to engage with equipping spiritual leadership for a climate changed world. And so Nicole and I have been really 
working very closely together around this in so many different ways since pre-pandemic. There are a lot of programs that the BTS Center is doing. Climate Change Podcast is one of them, but I think in some ways it couldn't help but be one of the flagship, the prominent features of it. How closely were they aligned? I mean, you didn't just, you started the podcast just recently and the BTS Center began back in 2013. So how did this podcast fit into the larger vision? In some ways, to understand that question, you actually have to go all the way back to 1812. We, as the BTS Center, are the successor organization to Bangor Theological Seminary, which, when it closed in 2012, was the second oldest seminary in the country. And it has this remarkable 200-year history were really what they did. They were located in northern Maine in Bangor, and their purpose was to train students who would be considered too poor, too old, or too uneducated to have otherwise received a theological education, and then send them out to marginal rural communities that otherwise would not have received theologically trained leadership. When they realized kind of that the writing was on the wall, both with kind of the decline in mainline American Christendom and then also the disruptions in higher education, they chose to close at a point where their resources could still be used as a seed to plant something new. And we are the results of that seed. So they closed in 2012. It took them a period, I think, of kind of experimentation and wandering in the wilderness to kind of figure out what their new identity was. And that's how we kind of came to the place that we did in late 2019, early 2020, realizing that there was a particular call for faith communities to respond to the climate crisis. So what we do with the podcast in many ways is a public manifestation of the work that we are doing with our programs, with our formation opportunities. But one of the really exciting things too, is it gives us a chance to share publicly a lot of the conversations that we have kind of informally as staff all the time. Nicole and I joke that hosting this podcast is really easy because this is the sort of conversations that we have every week in one environment or the other. And then the beautiful thing is we are able to bring in really incredibly insightful, accomplished practitioners and thinkers to really deepen the conversation and invite us into places of deeper groundedness and, and action together. And so in many ways, if there's like this stream that we're starting, this podcast is just kind of one of our most public outgrowths of this work that we've been working on since late 2019. And we had the privilege as part of Northern Spirit Radio, Spirit in Action program, to introduce you to the world. And before you even released your own podcast, we had portion of your podcasts on one of our Spirit in Action programs last month. I feel really deeply honored that you entrusted us with that. Of course, it helps the connection with Peterson Toscano, who has been a friend of mine. Actually, I interviewed him for Spirit in Action, I think it was in 2006, before he ever did any podcasting or anything like that. So I like to think that in some way, I get to be his father or something in that process. <laughs> uh, what got you into podcasting? Well, I would say there were two things. One of which is I started podcasting the same year that the church that my wife and I had planted together in the inner city neighborhoods of Haverhill, Massachusetts closed. It was one of the first mainline missional church expressions in the country. It was a church that didn't have weekly worship or a building, but was really focused on what would happen if we loved the community we were in the way that we believed God loved it, what sort of community would happen. So we did free markets and block parties and, you know, Bible studies and apartment buildings and, you know, handed out free food and free water on hot days and, and things like that. 
And so when it closed, I think there were two things that were happening. One is I needed a place to process what had happened with this ending of this season of my career. And as we all know, one of the greatest places for white males like myself to do so is is via a podcast. And so there was that that went on. And I have people who joke with me, you know, like that first season was, was really good, but we could tell you were really working through some things. And then the second part of that for me was also realizing there were all these really important untold stories about what was happening out in the world today. So oftentimes in these conversations, we default to places that are really heady, that are really anxiety driven, but oftentimes don't kind of make contact with reality. And so I had an opportunity to interview a lot of the people who were my colleagues to talk to them about their day-to-day lived experience and tell their stories in a way that was honest, that was thoughtful, and that was also hopeful. And those are some of the threads that we've tried to carry with us into the Climate Change Podcast, to have real conversations with people who are honestly grappling with the mess. And I mean mess both in the really difficult ways that we see what's happening in our world right now and the ever-accelerating pace of our climate crisis, and also the hope of the incredible people who are doing wonderful work to meet this moment as well. I've had the experience doing Northern Spirit Radio because there are a number of progressive people, I think particularly of democracy now, Amy Goodman, doing wonderful, wonderful work in exposing the problems of our world. But I do think that you just mentioned something that's deep and near to my heart, and that is to do it in a positive way. I want to highlight those people who are doing solutions, who are living into the vision, as opposed to the people who are mucking it all up. And <laughs> and it's really attractive to a lot of people to say, look at that person's doing this shady stuff, and look at that person screwed up that way. To find those who are doing the positive vision is a minority approach. Do you find that people say, hey, you haven't exposed enough dirt, why should I listen to you? You know, we haven't. And I think part of the reason is I think people are anxiety exhausted and also anxiety addicted in our country. We know, for instance, that our social media platforms are very explicitly designed to heighten our our evolutionary fear responses. And we are now put in contact with more sources and stories of suffering in the world than any other generation in human history. And I think people are tired of that, especially in this time where there are a lot of things that are really worth being concerned about going on. And I think that my experience is is people are really ready for an approach, for a perspective that is not naive, that doesn't pretend this all can be fixed with a wave of our fingers, but also is profoundly hopeful to say there is still room for agency. There's still profoundly good things that, that are going on. Because oftentimes, you know, they talk about in climate all the time, you know, you, you stack all those facts on top of each other, all this really negative stuff. And in the end, people don't respond because it's quite frankly overwhelming. But when we can offer stories of the incredible things that people are doing and people can look at them and say, I can see myself in those stories. I can see my community in those stories. That helps bring people to a place of empowerment that can lead to action. That's been exactly my perspective in doing Norton Spirit Radio programming. Your title with respect to the BTS Center is you're the Director of Applied Research. Yes. That sounds kind of heady. And I don't know, do they really allow redheaded people to be directors of applied research? The answer is apparently yes. For us in applied research, the thing we try to do to temper that 
tendency towards headiness, which is so much a part of the climate world, is so much a part of the theological world, is to say that what we do, it's about asking global questions with localized importance, centering the needs, experience, and wisdom of practitioners. So this isn't about creating new research that will impress other people in the academy or other experts. This is all about the people who are doing the work on the ground, not just thinking about what can we do, what can we learn that will help them do that work, but also understand that the real wisdom, in fact, is in the work and helping people kind of uncover and cultivate the wisdom that is actually part of their day-to-day practice doing the work that they're already up to. I'm going to ask you about more details of that very soon. One of the things that I think is most profound, and I'm not sure what this means to people who are not very religious or spiritually focused, but the BTS Center has, I don't know if this is a motto or it's a tagline, I don't know. The climate crisis is a spiritual crisis. I think that's at the center of the whole PTS center. Yes. Tell me what that means in your words. What this means is for us, the frame by which we approach the climate crisis is we don't see the climate crisis as a parts per million problem. It's not a problem if you could even describe it as a problem to be solved. That's a very Western way to look at challenges. It's not a problem that's going to be solved by more LED light bulbs or by solar panels That's not the angle we take. It's not just about advocating for government policy, although we believe things like solar panels and correct government policy are really important. Rather, we look at the climate crisis through what we call a transformational frame. In other words, we say, if the climate crisis is what's manifesting above the ground, then what's beneath the ground? What are the roots? And for us, we believe that those roots are spiritual roots because they get at the core of who we are as people in this culture. It's about what we see and what we don't see, what we value, what we don't value. It's about all those givens, those norms that we accept as this is the way reality is when they're just really this weird little culturally, historically particular blip that because we're in a position of power, we think, oh, this is the way the world is. So to give you an example of that, I think Robin Wall Kimmerer has done a really wonderful job beginning to point out how so much of the Western worldview is both just a worldview and is also really destructive. And so she talks about what difference does it make when you refer to trees as it's rather than using the language of personhood. She uses the language of key or or kin. So when we talk about the, the climate crisis as a spiritual issue, we're using the word spiritual very broadly. We're using it talking about this is a matter of perception. It's about what we see and what we don't see. It's a matter of how we're orienting our lives. And that perception and that way we orient our lives is what has given birth to the climate crisis. In other words, the climate crisis is a planetary manifestation of a spiritual set of issues. For us, this is an important approach to take. First, because we have roots within communities of faith, most particularly within the Christian lineage, which is also deeply complicit when it comes to this moment that we're in. And we believe that our religious traditions have something important to offer these spiritual issues and these spiritual questions to offer. It is very important that we have people who are building solar panels. It's very important that we have people who are advocating for correct government policy and for us to elect candidates who care about the planet. But it is also important for us to have people, to have leaders who are equipped to say, do you see what is underneath all this? Do you see the ways that we need to transform ourselves as people and as a society so that these same issues don't recur over and over again? 
Another thing that appears from my point of view, Ben, to be fundamental to the BTS Center is creativity. That is to say, instead of old structural ways of dealing with the world and of organizing people, there's an openness, and I think that's why you're the director of applied research, there's this openness to how can we create something new. I noticed you have the micro-grant program that you've been doing, and I think you just gave out six such grants, the From What Is to What If micro-grants, it's called. And I noticed mention of Rob Hopkins and the transition movement. I got connected with the transition movement maybe 10 years ago or so, and very excited about it, right? But what is the connection or neighborhood or whatever of transition with respect to the BTS Center? So for us, one of the places we find profound common ground with movements like the transition movement or people like Rob Hopkins, who will actually be doing a live recording of his podcast at our annual convocation this fall, his work has been very influential for us, is this idea of how important imagination is for our collective flourishing, both as a kind of a human and a planetary community. Because we are embedded in these places where oftentimes we can't even see that other worlds are possible, that other ways of configuring ourselves are possible. We need to bolster our imaginative capacities as individuals and communities so that we could begin to envision what could human society look like if it was not so abjectly dependent on fossil fuels as it is right now. And so for us, these are similar questions that we want to bring to congregations as well, which as I'm sure both of us are well aware of, are oftentimes also suffering under profound imagination deficits. I mean, the number of times I remember when I was working as a a local church pastor, you hear some version of, well, we've always done it this way. And imagination is indeed the very capacity to say, well, we may have always done it this way, but what if there was a new way to do it? And so, one of the things we try to do, for instance, through these imagination microgrants is open up a little space for congregations to begin to creatively reimagine what it means for them to be spiritual communities in the larger communities they're in, but also for this moment that they're in as well. My understanding is that the BTS Center is really dedicated to ecumenical practice. I I think, in fact, the Bangor Theological Seminary was also reaching strongly in that direction. But I think you may have just stepped up your game with respect to this. There is a religious connection still going on. A lot of the people working with you generally start their names with the REV, right, Reverend, which I tend to avoid because I'm Quaker and I believe this extremely egalitarian thing, right? Which I think you must believe too, which is why you were doing your previous pastorship in the inner city, right? So one of the things that caught my eye that I just was so excited to see was your operations manager. You referred to her as K before, K Ahmed. And Ahmed, I recognize, of course, as Muslim derived, and she identifies as Muslim. So you really have not just an ecumenical, but an interfaith view. Yes, we have an approach that we believe is both intentionally ecumenical and intentionally rooted. We do come from a Christian lineage, we come from the background of a congregational seminary, and we believe that that lineage is important. One of the things I've learned a lot when I've done decolonizing work is that decolonizing work begins at home. And so we believe that it is important for us to claim our lineage and to find ways to authentically speak out of our lineage, but to do so in an ecumenical way that invites people across a wide range of religious difference to the work together. 
this is actually something that's come up in the research collaborative that I've been leading as well, which involves leaders who primarily are do not have reverend in front of their name, are not involved with congregations, and many of whom would not in any way identify as religious. And what I've begun to learn is that, you know, we talk about the sacred secular split. And that language, of course, is very charged, especially right here in the United States. And we often talk about it as, do you belong to a formal religious community or not? And that determines whether you're on one side of the sacred secular split or not. But what I've begun to discover, and this is true with our using the term spiritual leadership as well, is that in this moment we're in, sacred and secular is far more about, do you believe that the world is alive. I had this amazing conversation with a friend who is an avowed atheist, but also believes that the trees talk to her and the forest has its own being, has its own dreams, has its own story, that there is something there we are conversing with besides just ourselves. And for me, what I've discovered when it comes to spiritual leadership is I find far more in common with her than I do with other people, many of whom are churchgoers, who see maybe themselves as alive, but the rest of the world as inert, dead objects. For me, this is about shifting the place where we find common ground. So oftentimes we talk about common ground as, do we share the kind of the same, quote, religious tribe? You know, do we go to worshiping communities at the same time during the week and maybe share some of the language? But for me, what's actually going on is it's about, do we share a similar worldview? Do we see the world as precious and beautiful and sacred? Do we see uh, the rest of the world as its or as whose? And to me, that is a profoundly sacred and spiritual way to view the world. And that is one that does not require affiliation with a religious tradition to be a part of. And so, we are both, as I say, rooted in our tradition, but also seeking to have these spiritual conversations with people who themselves oftentimes might not claim to have any religious background. While we're talking about that, Ben, and again, folks, we're speaking with Ben Joshua Davis. He is the Director of Applied Research for the BTS Center in Portland, Maine. And he's one of the co-producers of the newly released podcast, Climate Changed. And it's got a D at the end. I'll have to ask you about that in a moment. Ben is here today for Spirit in Action, and our website is northernspiritradio.org. We've been doing this for 17 years, had all kinds of guests, and we'll have a link to the BTS Center, as well as all of our other guests the past 17 years on our site. So come track it down, listen to the program. Again, you can download it. All of that is available via our website. There's also a place for you to comment, and we love two-way communication. I think that Ben would probably affirm this most strongly. Having been a person who sits behind a microphone for a while, it can feel lonely not knowing and not benefiting from the wisdom that our listeners have. So please post your comments, make suggestions, help us move forward. We do so best when we do it together. There's also a place for you to support Northern Spirit Radio. Click on that on our website. But remember especially to support your local community radio stations. There's some 45 stations nationwide carrying our programs, and they need your help because they provide an alternative view to the mainstream. It's so easy to get lost 
in the profit motive nationwide. And your local community radio station will not get lost in it because of your help. So please help bring up the voice of the community, the wisdom, the creativity of the community and support your local community radio station. Again, we're with Ben Yashua Davis. I always want to pronounce that real Hebrew sounding, you know, that and <laughs> And I appreciate that, actually. It, it helps me feel. And by the way, you've been using the word, Ben, ecumenical. Ecumenical, as I understand it, means Christian, varieties of Christian, as interfaith goes wider than that. And I understand uh, while you grew up as a, a Methodist squared, you also have wandered more widely. Is that a fair way to say it? Please explain your spiritual journey and your, your, the ground you grow in now. Well, I've joked that if my current religious affiliations were a Facebook status, it would be, it's complicated. I grew up as a Methodist preacher's kid, actually twice over, both my dad and my mom are Methodist preachers, United Methodists, who job shared, in fact, so that they could co-pastor and co-parent. My wife and I actually met in college, went off to seminary, and did the same thing for the first season of our lives together in Haverhill, Massachusetts, as I was talking about earlier. But I have since, and I, I realize that this is rather on the nose, considering that this has been the great trend in American religious life, have since disaffiliated from congregational Christianity. I still very much identify as a Christian. I have a community affiliation with this remarkable, we joke, it's a pharmacy called Spring Forest down in North Carolina, and I'm a part of their dispersed online community of prayer, where five days a week, Monday through Friday, we gather together and pray from um, Celtic prayer, put together by Philip Newell from Iona, and share life with one another. I find myself, therefore, in a place where I actually have a profound love for people who are connected with congregational Christianity. That's with a lowercase c rather than like a than like the the UCC or something like that. But people who are their spiritual community is expressed in the form of congregations because that is the form that birthed me and nurtured me. And I understand very deeply having worked in those settings, the challenges and hopes and opportunities that those communities face. And I also find in this moment that we're in that as our society, as I've talked about needs to be transformed in light of the challenges we're facing, that the face of American religious life, and certainly I'll speak most specifically for, you know, white Western Christian life here in America, needs to open up and cast forth new seeds for new forms of community, ones that are more deeply rooted in the larger communities in which they're embedded, and ones that can kind of release some of these institutional particulars, which people have been holding on to so hard, and release them and let something new occur. I am reminded how in the Christian tradition, immortality of the soul is actually not really the thing. It's resurrection of the body, which means that the cycle is death and resurrection. It's a profoundly ecological way to understand life. And that's true for our Christian communities and forms of Christianity as well. This form that we experience as normal in our country is actually maybe 200 years old, maybe not even that. It's very culturally and historically particular to kind of American culture. It's not the only way we've ever configured spiritual community. And now we're getting to this place where there's this wonderful opportunity for the form of the congregation to flourish alongside other forms as well. 
One of the pieces that I think that gets lost when we only talk about spirituality separate from community is that it loses the power of community. There is great importance, I think, in being not just one plant growing alone, but growing in a forest or a field or whatever. There's power in that. There's also power in diversity, right? So we know that not only does nature abhor a vacuum, nature abhors a monocrop. And so I actually love having diversity and community rooted together. How are you helping do that with the BTS Center? There are a few ways that we're working on that. One thing we're doing, as I talked about before, is inviting imagination within existing congregations, a chance to begin asking those questions about the givens which our congregations hold on to so strongly. Another is through work we've done trying to introduce other forms of Christian community to our constituents, especially Victoria Lors and her work with the Wild Church Network, which is this amazing set of communities that are meeting in outdoor places and learning what it means to re-befriend the more-than-human communities that we are embedded in. What we're also trying to do is help people invite spirit into their everyday contexts. So again, We have this idea of a sacred secular split, and another way that's often broken down is what is sacred is what happens in a particular building at a particular time, generally on Sunday morning, sometime during the week, and then there is the rest of our lives, rather than understanding that all of life is spiritual. And we don't even have to consider ourselves religious to approach our lives through a spiritual lens or to approach our leadership through a spiritual lens as well. I get torn as I talk to you, Ben, about wanting to talk about the climate changed podcast itself and the broader field that you grow in, which is the BTS Center. So I'm afraid I'm going to bounce back and forth. So let's mention a few more words about the podcast. You just started this past month. Now you've had your second episode out. What's the vision for this going into the future? Right now, what we're focused on, we'll have six episodes in season one that'll be coming out over the next set of months with the final episode being an audio essay that I'm putting together about what it means to be a parent in a climate-changed world, which is, of course, a topic. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old that's very near and dear to my heart and an interaction that I had with my son, a conversation about all this that was both hopeful and heartbreaking at the same time. Our vision is to release this first season, and again, as I was talking about before, to offer conversations with people that invite people into an honest look at the moment that we're in, but also a look that is hopeful and empowering as they consider how they can respond. I think the plan is to see how it is received, to kind of cast these seeds out, to see where they take root. What our response is for the people who hear the podcast, you know, Mark, when you were talking a little while ago about how much you uh, appreciate feedback, I could so relate to that because back when I was a podcaster with a different podcast before, I'd sometimes wonder like, has anyone listened to this conversation, but me and my (laughs) guest, you know, you put it out into the void, you might see some stats, but the thing that really gave me life with that, and I think will give us life when it comes to this podcast and let us know what sort of difference it might be making is the feedback and the questions and the ideas that come from people who receive it across this country and hopefully across the world. I want to grab a little strand of what you said in your second previous comment about being a father, being a parent. The last episode, you say you've got an essay, uh, essentially, that you're doing 
related to what you talked about with your son. I'm very aware that we wouldn't be doing climate change on this planet if the number of people was one-tenth of what it is now. That I don't think that we would be changing the climate significantly that way. Even that might be too optimistic on my part. But population is a big deal. And so working for the small church movement, small locally rooted communities, that makes perfectly good sense to me because we can actually look at which ground we're despoiling if we keep our eyes on the ground that we're trotting right now. How does that relate to parenting? I mean, you have to teach, and maybe I'm going to try and steal some of the thunder from what your essay that you're going to be sharing there. How does parenting relate with earth care? This, interestingly enough, is a conversation I've had with multiple other parents. So I live on uh, Shebig Island, Maine. It's this little unbridged island out in Casco Bay in Maine, about 350 year-round folk. And I remember having this conversation with another parent as we were on the back of the boat headed to the mainland. And the person said to me, like, I, I just have to ask, why did you decide to bring children into a world like this one? Which I think is a very related question to the one that you just asked. And I think there are a couple kind of places I go. The first is that if we raise our children, if I raise my children to be typical American consumers, then that is a problem because we already know that we as members of this country take up far too much space, ecologically speaking. We live in a lifestyle that we think of as normal, but is subsidized on the back of suffering people across this planet and more than just suffering people, suffering natural communities across this planet. So I feel like in this moment, I have an extra responsibility as a father to teach my children what it means to respond to this moment, to let that shape their lives, their professional choices, but also what they understand as normal. So like one of the things that we're doing on the island, I spend a lot of time renovating this old rundown island farmhouse. We're hoping to move in this fall. I know way more about hanging sheetrock than I ever thought I would in my life. And one of the reasons we got this property is because it has a good acre or acre and a half of arable land. And this will give us an opportunity to live closer to the earth, closer to our community, but moreover, teach our children and their friends how to do the same thing. The other thing that this speaks to me, though, about is hope. Hope is a big question that comes up in climate. Why do you have children? For parents, it's less a question about moral responsibility than it is a question about what hope do you have for the future. And where I've kind of come to is that if I raise my children in love, if I raise my children to respond to this moment as best as they can, then that is enough. Win, lose, or draw, that is enough. And that's kind of the place that I have to sit with them because, you know, questions of population are really significant ones. And as I say, I think those needs would probably be significantly less if our lifestyles here in the United States were significantly less consumptive. I note that a lot of places in the world with higher birth rates, they, they still have much smaller ecological footprints than we do. So I think there's a lifestyle issue there. But then the other part of it is just at some point, hope becomes a choice. It becomes an action, not something that is based on whether or not you think you can control the future or control an outcome or not. The next question I have for you, Ben, is I'm not sure if it's a question about the Climate Changed podcast or whether it's about the BTS Center. It could be that the BTS Center is a single issue forum. That is to say, the issue is climate, climate change, living better on the earth that way. 
I just recently, for Spirit in Action, interviewed Beverly Ward, who is field secretary for Earth Care for Southeastern Yearly Meeting, which Quakers down near Florida. And she is a woman of color. And because of that, she also, in her climate issues that she deals with, she deals with the justice and race and everything else type issue. It's clear from the way that you talk, Ben, that you're very aware of these broader issues. So my question just comes down to, is BTS Center Climate Change a single issue type forum, or is it really about the broader world? It's very much the latter, and that's because we believe that climate is an issue with which all these other issues intersect. Climate justice is also racial justice because we know environmental racism is such a huge issue in this country and because we know that the people who will pay the disproportionate burden of the results of our abuse of this planet are not white privileged folks that look like me but are people in far less privileged contexts. It's about social justice in all its forms. And one of the things that we try to do, again, because we have this transformational approach where we see the climate crisis as a visible concrete manifestation of a deeper set of issues, is we try to introduce the people who are part of our programming to the way that these are all connected together. And so we'll do programs about decolonization, uh, about anti-racism training, about issues uh, around inclusion based on sexual orientation and gender identity is because we believe that that is all part of the climate work as well. I'm aware that I've been remiss. I have not been mentioning the website of the BTS Center as I've been speaking. Of course, it is on northernspiritradio.org, but people should know that the website is the, T-H-E, BTS Center, C-E-N-T-E-R dot org. I want to point that out because we're not going to have full time, Ben, to talk about all of the programs of the BTS Center while we're here, but I do want to touch on a few of them right away. One of them I already mentioned, which was the From What Is to What If micro grants. I saw that you released six of them recently. Tell us about those grants. What are you trying to accomplish with those? These microgrants were ones that we gave as part of a program that we did around from what is to what if, Rob Hopkins' book about cultivating imagination within community settings. And then out of this experience, which a bunch of congregations participated in, there were the opportunity to offer these microgrants to give them a chance to try out some of their imaginings within their own context. And so the idea was that these would help a community of faith try something new, that they would lay the groundwork for further innovation in that community of faith, and then also kind of help fire up the imagination of others. So for instance, we had this community, First Parish in Gorham, Maine, that noted that though they're in a very highly visible downtown area, that people didn't see them as a community place. So they asked a wonderful what-if question. What if all the publicly accessible places in Gorham Village, which is the center of Gorham, became art spaces And what if the exterior street side wall of the church became an outdoor art gallery? And so they used our grant to gather town stakeholders, so arts organizations and town representatives and artists and businesses to imagine around this question. They put on an art show a couple months ago in May and invited the community members, in fact, as people came and joined the art show to write their own what-if questions about Gorham as well. We were able to offer micro-grants to five different faith communities to offer these sorts of opportunities within their own contexts. 
It sounds like some great creativity going on there. And another of the projects or programs, I don't know what to call them. Again, as director of applied research for the BTS Center, maybe you know better names than I do. So, for instance, Alan Ewing Merrill, who's executive director of the BTS Center, he's co-facilitating a program on small church leadership community. What's that mean? What, what are we doing there? So this is a small church leadership community for Northern New England churches. It's running for about six months. And again, you'll notice how some of these themes kind of emerge. For us, it's about fostering imagination with the eye towards looking towards resiliency. What we have noted as we've begun to learn from the small congregations that are the core part of our historic constituency is this need that congregations have to imagine their way into better futures for themselves. And we find that in this moment where, you know, there's profound decline going on in American Christendom, that small congregations often kind of are offered two pathways. And the one is they can become more rigid. They can hold tight to the status quo. The idea is basically we don't change until we die, which is not a very life-giving path for anyone, for their leaders, for their members, for the communities that they're a part of. Or they can step into new futures with curiosity and faith, adopt practices that nurture resilience and embrace new imaginative possibilities. I think this is really important in small churches as well, because there is, in my experience, having grown up in the context of small congregations, kind of this inferiority complex that comes with being a small congregation. There's this implicit understanding that if your congregation is small, there's something wrong with it, because if they were actually healthy, they would be a large congregation. And in fact, oftentimes congregations are sold this set of oftentimes just flagrantly unrealistic and unhelpful, quote, church renewal programs that are really about trying to teach small churches how to act like big churches in ways that just don't work. They don't honor their context. They don't honor their mission. Part of what we're trying to do is help congregations imagine that maybe being small is okay. Maybe more than being okay, maybe actually that's exactly the shape of who God wants them to be within the context of their communities. Historically, if we look at when civilizations have faced moments of collapse and deep challenge, it's the small communities that stick around, the small communities of, of deep intention. And so part of what we're trying to get at as well is that maybe our small congregations have a unique vocation for this climate-changed moment that we're in, especially in how they prepare their communities for the realities that are facing them. And I certainly relate to the small congregation. Then, of course, I'm Quaker and, you know, wherever two or three are gathered, right? You know, you don't need 278. As a matter of fact, we pretty typically have between 10 and 20 people present for our weekly worship. Another program that I noticed on your site was, I don't know if to call these programs, again, I don't really know what to call them, but Lament with Earth, a series of five virtual rituals in collaboration with Chicago music group, The Many. So it followed the liturgical year. Do you know anything about this? Maybe you weren't even part of it. Yes. In fact, I had the opportunity to offer a reflection that was a part of one of them. What this was, was our understanding that one of the things that we need to do in this moment is find ways to come in contact with our grief and lament for what was lost. And so, one of the words that we keyed in on was this word, solastalgia, which means feeling homesick while you're still at home. Because for many of us, that is our experience of the loss of place that we're in. I know here on the island where I live, there is this beach that due to extreme weather events and sea level rise is being washed away 
where generations of families have played and gone in the water and gone clamming. And there is this need for grief that this place is going away. And also because grieving and lamenting is part of how we engage with reality. And so we began to think, what would it look like to engage with this, not as kind of a one-off practice, but as a regular thing that we are doing kind of in the cycle of the seasons. So you'll see that we've had four of these gatherings and these gatherings are all kind of synced up with the seasons and are also part of kind of a, a spiritual movement as well. And I'll note that we have recordings of all of those on our website as well. They were really powerful gatherings live, but they are also incredible experiences that you can access on the btscenter.org as well. Sounds like a wonderful experience of grieving and, and therefore getting to the roots of what's going on for us. I also understand that the BTS Center sponsors sometimes book groups, nature retreats, any of those of note that you'd care to bring to our attention? One opportunity, and this is one that you can access at any point in time, is what we're calling our leadership comments. This is where we get an opportunity to take many of our live programs and our book studies, and then we try to turn them into resources that you can offer back to your community, and we do so free of charge. We have a group of seasonal curators who are curating that content for us, and we're working hard to try to attach resources to a lot of the videos and the other sorts of things so that you can use these back in your communities. So so, for instance, we have one on creating your story of tomorrow, and it's one about how do you build imaginative capacities in your community. Another that's based around the Rooted and Rising book study. So, if that's a book that you'd like to study with your community, we have a set of videos you can use to enhance that book study that you might do within the context of your work. We're going to be having a lot more coming up about that as well. We're going to have a regular set of open houses that people can come and stop in and find out about the new content that's coming out. So that's something definitely to uh, check out on our website. So many good programs going on there. In addition to, again, you, Ben Yeshua Davis, being the BTS Center's Director of Applied Research. By the way, when I heard that name, the thing that came to mind for me is uh, Director of Applied Research. This is a think tank. And <laughs> I'm afraid that might be a negative concept for most people. But are you a think tank? We are not a think tank, though we do a lot of thinking. The thing I'm actually most excited about with my work with Applied Research is a research collaborative that we are doing, a cross-sector research collaborative with organizational leaders across northern New England and one from the Quebec province of Canada to explore the question, how would organizations act differently today if they embodied an ecological imagination? And doing so right now in the context of a co-learning community that started in November of last year and is running until November of this year. So we have this incredible group of organizations working in all these different sectors from immigration to community arts, to higher ed, to volunteer organizing, to urban agriculture. Most of these leaders are not people who come from religious backgrounds. None of them work in congregational settings. All are interested in exploring this question for the reasons that we've been talking about in our conversation, because they see this moment as calling out something different for them and for their organizations. So as they're going through this co-learning process together, I'm getting to do a lot of work paying attention to what we are learning through that process about what does organizational change look like when people start to move from the mechanistic industrial models for what organizations and organizational leadership 
leadership are kind of accepted as in our country to what is an ecological model? What does an ecologically imagined organization look like? And even six months in, as we are right now, some of the findings have just been really startling and really exciting. One of my friends, Sam Thayer Price, included a chapter in one of his books on foraging. He's, I guess, probably the the preeminent national expert on foraging, and you can check out his books and find that out. But in one of the chapters in it, he talks about the need for moving from agriculture to ecoculture. And as he explains it, it makes such perfect sense that if we were traveling with that view instead of the other one. But of course, you know, part of our struggles in this, and I'm sure that the BTS Center is trying to sort this out, is as much as we have a vision of the earth as a whole and our respect for all of creation, etc., there's issues of power and of personal advantage and accumulation, which draw people in a different viewpoint and maybe encourage them to put on blinders. And so I think really confronting issues of power is absolutely central to being effective in our advocacy for a different view. How do you wrestle with that as part of the BTS Center? I think that you're absolutely right. And this is one of the reasons why we believe a spiritual transformation is necessary, a reorientation of perspectives and a reorientation of values. Because for many of us, it still feels, especially those of us in power, it still feels like the system is working pretty well for us. And one of the things that we are inviting people to reimagine, for instance, via this co-learning community, or in fact, we didn't invite, these are questions that people started asking unprompted, where in ecologically imagined organization, what does power and hierarchy look like? And does it have to look like we have all these people at the top who have all the prestige and we assume have all the knowledge and, and get all the money? And then, you know, we kind of have this trickle down down to the bottom. Are there more collaborative ways to form kind of the relational ecologies of our organizations. And some people are trying on just some really interesting role definitions or even just very practically how they do salary negotiations to start to embody something that looks a lot more like what a healthy ecosystem does. There is another side to that as well, which is the question of agency when it comes to how do you respond to this moment? We are often taught, especially in our positions of privilege, that, you know, you can do anything you put your mind to. And this, of course, is a patent falsehood and profoundly guilt-inducing and disempowering when we look at something like the climate crisis and we think, well, you know, I can't solve that thing. <laughs> I can't do that thing. And so one of the things we're also discovering within organizations is how to help people productively wrestle with the limits of what is possible to say, okay, if you can't change the world, what are you able to change? If you can't throw out everything that you've inherited from a capitalist industrial framework, because salaries still have to be paid, donations still have to come in, you know, we're still interfacing with this world as it is, then where can you exercise meaningful agency? And one of the things we're discovering is that even when your power is limited, there are still places where you can exercise really considerable influence, oftentimes at a very local level. Again, the website for the BTS Center is thebtscenter.org, links on nordenspiritradio.org. One of the things when I went to that site, Ben, and I looked at your vision, your mission, other descriptors about your site, one of the things that it said is that 
the BTS Center engages people from across mainline and non-denominational Christian churches, Quaker, Jewish, Buddhist communities, as well as those who identify as spiritual but not religious. I just want to know if that means you exclude people who are not spiritual. <laughs> you didn't include them in that. <laughs> I remember when I was talking with people about joining this co-learning community, and one of the things I would say is just to be really clear, like this is not a Christian space that we're creating. We are not norming Christian language. There will not be prayers. There will not be worship. There will not be any of these, these sorts of things. But insofar as the questions we ask in climate speak to our deepest held values, our greatest hopes, our greatest fears, our consciousness, the way we see the world, insofar as all those things are spiritual questions they are all welcomed and invited in this space. And so my guess is, is that if people are not interested in any of those questions that I just named, they probably wouldn't be interested in us anyway. <laughs> well, you're pretty interesting folks. And again, the way that I got in contact with Ben Yashua Davis and his co-producers, Peterson Toscano and Nicole Diroff, the way I got connected with them is because we actually featured on Spirit in Action, the Climate Change Podcast. I haven't asked you this, and I, I need to know, inquiring minds in our audience need to know, what's the schedule for the release of these podcasts? How often are you doing this, and how do they access them? The answer is we launched in June. We released two episodes right back to back. So if you like the first one, you can immediately go and check out the next one. And then we're going to release once a month all the way through October. So at the end of July, we'll have our next episode out, which is an interview I had with Craig Santos Perez, who's an amazing poet. And then we'll release episodes all the way through till October. You can find our release schedule where we are sharing when we're releasing each episode down to the day on our website, on the podcast page on our website, or better yet, subscribe to us and they will just drop right into your feed as soon as they're released. And again, the way you're going to access that is via thebtscenter.org, links on nordenspiritradio.org. Ben, it's been great talking with you. I really, I'm, I'm sorry not to get to meet Nicole and Alan and the other folks related to that, because I haven't found a dud in the whole group. As, as I've checked out who you are, I get glimpses of each of you, and I appreciate so much the work that you're doing and that you took the time to join me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. It's such a privilege to be a part of this program and to be a part of the wonderful work that you're doing as well. And who knows, maybe this will become part of a continued conversation. I'd love that. And again, folks, go to nordenspiritradio.org, find the links to BTS Center. Remember to subscribe to their podcast of their Climate Changed podcast. And please join us again next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh